Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dell, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. With the latest rate cuts lowering returns for conservative investors and markets at elevated levels around the world, it's quite an interesting time for investors. Today I'm joined by Carl McIntyre from Firetrail, an Australian equity fund manager looking for opportunities in this very interesting market. Kyle is an investment specialist who has worked with the Firetrail team since they were the Australian equities team at Macquarie. Kyle, thanks so much for joining me. Gemma, thanks for having me. So Kai was also on the ASX Roadshow that I've mentioned a couple of times, had some awesome stories and some great ideas for people. So if you were fortunate enough to see him then, you will also get plenty more benefit from this particular podcast. You can talk about more stuff. Kyle, world of 1% interest rates, cash rates that are basically negative after inflation. It's not, it's not uncommon around the world. There's plenty of regions that have gotten very used to this. In Australia, it's a new phenomenon and it's starting to really certainly for older people, make them a bit anxious. How do you see people responding right now? Yeah, well, it's a great question and something that we talk about all the time at Firetrail because essentially uh, it affects the way that you value companies, it affects the way that you value equity securities and, if, and it impacts investor behaviour. Um, so, I mean, investing is all about valuing the future earning stream or the future cash flows of a business and essentially what happens when rates come down and bond yields come down is that the amount that you can earn on risk-free assets comes down and the discount rates that you apply to investments such as equity securities also comes down. Now, what does that mean? I was going to say, do you want to explain what a discount rate is? Because I remember yeah. the first time I heard the concept, I was like, ah, oh, it makes sense, but I would never have gone there intuitively. Yeah, well, taking a step back, when, when you're valuing um, in equities, you can either do it price to earnings ratio, or you can do a discounted cash flow. Um, But essentially what you're doing is saying, what am I going to pay for the future cash flows or the future earnings of this business? Um, Now, obviously, cash flows that you earn today are more valuable than cash flows that you would earn in the future. And so the discount rate is a discount that you apply to those future cash flows because you've got to wait a longer period of time to receive those cash flows. Now. Usually the discount rate, um, well, always the discount rate is affected by the risk-free rate. So the amount that you get on say term deposits or treasuries and the like. Um, Now that is important because if you're looking at longer term cash flows and you're saying, what are these worth? You compare it to other asset classes like Mm -hmm. cash, like treasuries, like bonds. And so when you're valuing equities, you say, okay, well, what is this worth relative to other assets and that affects the discount rate that you apply to those future cash flows. So how much you wanna get back from those future cash flows because you're giving up money today for money in the future and that's what investing is all about. So the key question is what happens when interest rates, cash rates, bond yields all come down? Well, what we call the risk-free rate where you can earn a return on term deposits for basically zero risk, Mm. that comes down And so other asset classes like equities become more attractive because they have higher yields than those than those asset classes so relative if you're earning two percent in your cash account and that goes down to one percent and you're looking at the equity market and you can get a four and a half percent dividend yield in the aussie equity market that four and a half percent actually becomes more attractive when the cash rates go from two percent down to one percent 
Uh, and so it affects the way you value securities, it affects the way you value equities. And the impact it's having is companies with longer dated cash flows, those longer dated cash flows are becoming more valuable um, to investors today. And so we're finding that equity markets around the world are rallying on the back of this. And it's counterintuitive, but when rates come down, equity markets go up in value and vice versa. When rates go up, equity markets come down because the relative valuation becomes less compelling. Um, so what we're seeing is people moving into equity markets. We're seeing um, people go higher up on the risk spectrum in terms of where they're looking to generate returns. And that's because they want better yields and, and they're looking for that in equity markets. Um, the challenge we've got as investors is asking ourselves, how long does this last? Uh, what is the direction of interest rates here in Australia? Um, and if you're an Aussie equity investor, uh, the challenge you're asking yourself is, am I happy with a 1% return in my cash account? Or should I go up the risk spectrum and get a 4 to 5% return by investing in equity markets and taking a little bit more risk? Um, so they're the questions we're asking ourselves. What are things worth today in the equity market? And where are investors looking for those returns in a lower return environment? I think you've made so many good points there and a lot of investors, certainly I make this mistake, right? So I go, I think the fundamentals are just not there for a company or for markets in general. I think that looks very expensive. But when the alternative is 1%, it's not that expensive at all. The relativity is very important. And also markets are made up of people, right? And you know that all of those people are doing exactly the same calculations going, yeah, 1% is no good for me right now. I can't live on that. And I think one of the most material issues, certainly if I look at our investor base and I talk to people, the amount that they get on their cash is absolutely material to their standard of living. Yeah. And so, you know, such a large proportion of our share market is underpinned by retirees who are absolutely dependent on that cash flow. It's very important. And then you look also at younger people who are trying to save to buy a home. That's the, the number one goal for younger people I talk to. Yeah. They're trying to save at 1%, which is frankly negative after tax and inflation mm. quite negative um you know they're actually losing money every year so the you know it's quite difficult for people looking at that environment going how on earth do i get a return the only alternative for me is to move up the risk spectrum and yeah. it might make them anxious but they don't don't see any obvious alternative to that staying where they are is just not going to work yeah and i think you hit the nail on the head um earlier when you said that people are investing and and so it's it's people with emotions that are making these decisions and a it's a lot less safe uh, in terms of the certainty of though that yield or that cash flow coming through when you move from something like term deposits or cash to bonds and then up the risk risk spectrum into equities um, but I think it's when people say things like this is the new norm uh, <laughs> things are going to stay lower forever um, you won't get a return on cash ever again. Um, I, I think you've got to be sceptical when, when people have those views because what we've seen through experience is that markets move in cycles. Um, and yes, interest rates are lower and, and yes, the direction that the market is, is pricing uh, at the moment is, is down for interest rates. But we actually don't know uh, what is going to happen in the future. And the direction of interest rates, there are so many different variables uh, that go into a reserve bank and, and, um, and Governor Lowe and, and the like when they're making those decisions. 
um, that it is very, very hard to predict the direction of those. And so I think when you're investing, you need to take a step back and say, okay, well, is this normal? Um, and what is the margin of safety I need to have um, if I get this wrong? Um, and so that's where our skill comes in, in, in trying to find undervalued companies uh, where we have some sort of margin of safety in there um, so that if interest rates directions do change and equity valuations come down, you actually have some safety priced in uh, when you're looking at those assets. But it, it, is, it is a huge challenge. And, um, and if you don't think of it in both ways, are interest rates going up or could interest rates go down further? You do have a chance of uh, of, of missing out, and so it's a, it's a challenging challenging time, and you've got a bit of a dichotomy um, moving in in equity markets and and investors' portfolios. So, with all of that in mind, you know people are driven to look at investment opportunities they'd not have thought about before. All of that safety, I talk about this all the time to the point where it's boring. Um, but self-managed super funds have twenty five percent of their portfolio in cash and term deposits. Mm. Every time I talk to an SMSF trustee, we know that's a massive issue for them. It doesn't change. It's been like that for 10 years. Uh, you were talking about discount rates when I was first doing analysis and we would use quite complex software, but we would always have to put in a discount rate against which you assess things. It was 6% when I was doing it. They're like, your discount rate is not 6% anymore. Your risk premium on top of that for equities is not going to give you 11. Yeah, um, right. So what are you seeing is the major themes, you know, as people look at this environment go, okay, I need to get a return. That's imperative. Investing is sort of pointless. If I'm not getting a return, I know I'm not getting it from my cash and dumb deposits. Where are people allocating? What do you see as the big themes? Yeah, well, within the equity market, and in particular, the Australian equity market, it, it's really interesting because we're seeing people still chasing yield, uh, but they're looking for safe yield mm. um, within the equity market. And so what we're seeing currently is a herding of investors into what they consider safe yielding assets. So think of things like industrial style REITs, um, to some extent the banks as well, mm. um, and, and companies where you get an okay dividend yield, um, but you've got a bit of certainty in the earnings profile there, at least in, in the short term. Uh, now the, the challenge when a bunch of investors herd together into those style of assets is that those assets actually become less attractive as a long-term investment opportunity and it actually drives the yield down as the prices of these assets increase and so a classic example is uh, Goodman Group uh, which is considered a safe yielding company uh, a safe yielding REIT in the Aussie market um, but is actually delivering a less than three percent um, dividend yield uh, today as, as a REIT. Mm. Now, for us, when we're looking at opportunities across the market, that's actually no longer a compelling investment opportunity for us. I mean, really, what you're pricing in there is absolute perfection in terms of earnings growth. Um, but I think what people are really pricing in is, is certainty in, in short-term earnings, and they're willing to pay what I think are extreme premiums uh, for that certainty. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, you've got companies that may be considered uh, a little bit more cyclical. Um, and to give you an example, like a Qantas, mm. um, which is delivering a 4.4% dividend yield, uh, fully franked. And yes, you've got more cyclicality uh, in a business like Qantas. But I think that is really creating opportunities for people who are willing to do the research, 
dig a little bit further and say, okay, well, when I'm comparing these two businesses, and you don't need to compare Qantas and Goodman, but when I'm comparing a 4.4% dividend yield with a little bit more volatility versus a less than 3% dividend yield with less volatility, what is the trade-off uh, I'm looking for here? And, and that's what creates the opportunity uh, for fundamental investors. It's saying, okay, well, a company like Goodman is priced for, for perfection, um, but a company like Qantas, you can buy it at an extreme discount to the market multiple. Um, you can buy it at an extreme discount to its global peers, so you're getting a bit of a margin of safety in there, but you still get a 4.4% dividend yield. You've got the company buying back shares. Um, for me, that is a, a compelling investment opportunity. The price you pay is a little bit of cyclicality, uh, but I think when you think about companies in the long term, every company has cyclicality. Uh, so there may be less cyclicality in the short term for some of these uh, industrial style REITs, uh, but over the long term, you don't know what's going to happen in that industry and every industry moves in cycles. So you can't avoid cyclicality when you're investing, um, but it's people's perception of cyclicality that are driving uh, their behavior at the moment. So really interesting point you make and I think this this point about chasing yields and looking for for certainty certainly a lot of nav trade investors we you would put money on it every single day if you see bank shares drop for example or something like a Goodman drop for whatever reason and it might drop for a really good reason you know there's been uh, a negative earnings surprise there's been an announcement that people aren't happy about our investors will jump all over that and buy that at a discount because they're looking for the yield and they're happy to wear a bit of price pain in the short term that doesn't always pay off so they've been aggressively buying AMP over the last 12 months because mm. the share price has been coming down it's continued to come down <laughs> it certainly hasn't rallied at any point during that period and now the dividend's been cut entirely so doing the work to understand why the dividend yield is where it is is quite important as well you always go the yield's great but you yeah. got to understand the quality of the company and whether or not the yield is sustainable yeah that's absolutely true and i mean i think the term that's thrown out there is avoiding yield traps um and that is something that you definitely have to look out for i mean for us um at Fitrail, what what we look to do is find undervalued companies and then we do the work on the earnings, understand the earnings over the medium to long term and understand the earnings profile. And if you can find an undervalued company with stable to growing earnings, uh, that is the holy grail uh, for an investor and, and that is what we look for. The key thing you mentioned is you've, you've got to do the work and, and understand what's going to drive the company over the medium to long term. Um, and AMP is a great example where it's fallen a long way and so Optically, it looks cheaper relative to what it looked a year and a half ago. Mm. Um, but you've got to have a look at the underlying drivers of that business, the challenges that they face, and ask yourself whether there are going to be more issues that will impact earnings and more earnings disappointments. Um, and our philosophy is, you know, if, if there are earnings disappointments on the horizon, you'll be able to buy that company at a cheaper price at a future date. Uh, because what we see time and time again, everyone's focused on valuations at the moment, but we see it time and time again over the short term, over the long term, share prices do follow earnings. Mm -hmm. And it's those earnings, those cash flows uh, that investors are looking for over the long term, um, and they will drive equity price valuations. So if a company's going to disappoint the market, if they're going to disappoint on earnings, 
that share price will go down and you can buy it at a cheaper price in the future. Yeah, if you think it has the potential to turn it around, which is probably the critical thing. So you talk about valuations. I think valuations are, as you say, we're in, there's quite a dichotomy happening at the moment. So what are the areas that you guys think are particularly overvalued at the moment? Well, it's interesting because parts of the market we understand why parts of the market are becoming more expensive. Uh, if you think about infrastructure uh, style companies where you've got long dated cash flows, and so a Transurban or an Atlas Arteria um, are great examples there at Sydney Airport. Um, because the discount rate has come down that we were talking to earlier, the future value of those cash flows has become more valuable today. And so you've seen that reflected in the valuations of, of those style of companies. Uh, that to me makes sense. Um, but then you have other parts of the market where we believe it's just been overdone and, and safe yield is something I've already touched on. Interestingly, within the REITs, uh, the safe yielders and, and where you've got a bit of certainty have been overbid, but things like retail REITs mm. actually have, have underperformed. Uh, and so the market is behaving quite rationally there. I think where we're seeing really irrational behaviour in the market is in growth and in particular in tech Mm. Um, and again with tech companies they do have longer term longer dated cash flows um, or no cash flows or or, or no cash flows yeah (laughs) negative cash flows yeah yeah that's Mm. right and and to go offshore I mean Uber's the classic example where you know they're able to, to IPO come to market have something in there as a disclaimer saying hey we may never actually earn a profit but the fact is if you're looking out 20 years uh, for that company to generate a profit, generate cash flows, the lower the discount rate is, the more valuable those cash flows become. Um, those however, hypothetical cash flows. <laughs> correct, correct. However, at, at any stage, every company has a price and there becomes a stage where you can pay way too much for a company's future earnings. And paying above 50 times for some of these, uh, what you call wax stocks within the Aussie equity market, your WiseTex, your Altiums, your Afterpays, your Appen, and, and Zero. Some of those are actually quite good businesses, and, and some of those aren't earning uh, uh, cash flows at the moment because they're investing those cash flows. But if they reduce the amount that they were investing, Zero is a classic example. Zero would be generating profit tomorrow. It's just that they're reinvesting those cash flows into the business. Um, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got some of those other stocks um, that are trading on extreme multiples. And really, absolutely everything needs to go right for these companies in order for them to be a good investment in the future. And so you don't have any margin of safety priced into these assets, um, in, in my view today. And if you look at the Australian market, the Australian tech companies we have here versus the US market, our tech stocks are trading at a huge premium um, to the US textile stocks. And these are companies that have proven their business model, they've proven the technology and the IP, Mm. Um, and arguably you've got companies in Australia that actually haven't proven uh, not only the technology but the business model as well and the commercialisation. So for us, that part of the market does look overvalued, um, and with our investment process looking for undervalued companies, yes, you may be able to um, model the earnings out over a, a number of years, but valuation is key and price the price you pay is the key decision when you're looking to invest for the long term and for us you want to be buying undervalued companies and and 
they look expensive to us at the moment. <laughs> They're not undervalued. Many things, but not undervalued. On our numbers. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it is quite, as you point about that, uh, you know, the, the US companies have a proven business model. In addition to that, they've shown they can grow market share in the world's biggest market, excluding China. But obviously, a lot of our investors are really interested in Baidu and Tencent and these guys as well. So yeah. you see the ones where they have proven their ability to get market share in these enormous markets. Yes. If you're growing in Australia, it's a really tiny market. And so to then go offshore is actually quite challenging. You'll hit a completely different demographic and all these kinds of things. It's yeah. not to say they can't do it. It's sensational if they can, but it's a, it's an entirely different market. Yeah, and I think the key term is, is risk um, because you're right with a lot of these tech stocks, it is a winner-take-all or winner-take-most um, mm. style scenario. Um, and so you've seen that with the rise of the Baidu's, but even the American companies like like the Microsofts and the Googles, you know, it is a, a winner takes most. Um, and I think what we're seeing at the moment is people are pricing in that these Australian companies are going to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of certainty there uh, in the price. And the question for the sceptical investor is, well, what, what could go wrong and what is the probability of them actually winning here um, for some of those companies it might be high for others it might be more challenging um, it's just whether or not the valuation reflects that so where are you guys looking for opportunities like where do you see the most exciting stuff for patient investors at the moment yeah I'd put it into two broad buckets um, the first one is uh, at the moment we're seeing boring is beautiful and I'm gonna put that at the top. Boring is beautiful. Bore, Excellent. Boring <laughs> is beautiful and sometimes the boring opportunities or the unglamorous opportunities are actually the best investment opportunities. Um, and so a company that we like at the moment that fits in that boring is beautiful camp is is Telstra. Uh, now I cannot believe I'm talking about <laughs> Telstra right? as, yes. as an investment opportunity as mm. a high conviction investor. Mm. Um but you know every company has a price, and Telstra has gone from the mid six dollar range in twenty fifteen uh, down to around three dollars eighty today, uh, and and it was uh, much lower than that earlier in the year. Um, but things have changed uh, for Telstra, um, and they're actually going through some pretty big transitions in terms of the competitive environment that they're operating in, and that's really where we see the opportunity. If you think about Australia's mobile market, which is 70% of Telstra's earnings. Uh, you've got Optus, whose parent company is Singtel. Uh, you've got um, Vodafone, and you've got TPG. Uh, now, Telstra is actually benefiting from having distracted competitors with Vodafone and TPG, given they're still waiting from the regulator to find out whether or not they're able to merge. Mm. Um, And so they're sort of sidelined until we get some sort of resolution within the next 12 months there. Um, And Optus uh, has actually become a more rational competitor in the mobile space. And so what we're seeing is the pricing environment within mobile within Australia is becoming more rational. We're seeing prices increase across the board. And at the same time, Telstra's got an advantage at the moment with 5G because of the uh, ban of Huawei um, coming into Australia. Those other providers, Optus, um, TPG and and Vodafone, were actually relying on Huawei technology for their 5G investment in Australia. And and so Telstra is actually the lone, or actually has an advantage 
in 5G at the moment because those companies haven't been investing for 5G. And so if you're Singtel who, who owns Optus, you have a really hard decision to make at the moment and, and that is, am I going to invest capital to develop my 5G capabilities in Australia today? Now, Singtel is a global operator and they have different opportunities across the world. And so they've got to assess the return that they're going to get on that in Australia versus countries like Indonesia and the like. And that may not be the best use of their capital. And so Telstra is in a really great competitive environment. They are the market leader and so they are going to benefit from any price increases that come through in the market. At the same time, we're seeing them strip costs out of the business. And so for us, you've got a better competitive environment. You've got costs coming out of the business, which, which we think needs to happen. They're, they're quite well progressed on those costs coming out of the business uh, today. And so we're seeing earnings growth in a company that's been pretty sleepy uh, up until this point. And so, you know, at current valuations with earnings growth coming through, Telstra to us, it, it may be boring, but as an investment opportunity, it is very exciting. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I, I mentioned this earlier, we're seeing any company with cyclicality is, uh, investors are avoiding anything with cyclicality. Uh, Qantas again is a classic example where it's trading on nine times price to earning, 4.4% dividend yield. Over the past four years, they've bought back 26% of their share base. Um, and it's actually rallied 400% over the last four years, but we still think it's undervalued. It's undervalued versus global peers. And so your US airlines generally trade on around 12 times price to earnings. But Qantas is actually in a much better competitive industry in Australia. There's only two main competitors in Australia. In the US, there's four to five key competitors. Yeah, um, if you've ever flown an American airline or you've had an experience on them, um, yeah, Qantas looks fabulous as a consumer yeah. <laughs> and potentially as an investor as well. Yeah. And, um, yep. Safety records also much more impressive. That's right. Um, but the, the other key thing is Qantas's main competitor, Virgin, still isn't making money. And so when we speak about Qantas, I, I think you've got to take a step back because when people think about Qantas, they probably think about the oil price and is that going to impact Qantas? They probably think about demand. Are we in a softer demand environment? Mm. And the answer is yes, the consumer's been softer. But airlines are all about supply and demand and mm. there are two sides to that equation. And so we've seen demand weaken but we've also seen very rational responses to supply between Qantas and Virgin. And so when planes aren't filling, they're actually taking planes out of the market and they're reducing the capacity. What that means is the prices that they can charge for, for seats continue to increase even though you're not seeing an increase in demand because supply is being taken out of the market. That's great for um, a company like Qantas, mm. who again is the market leader, price rising environment, they're actually able to offset any sort of increase uh, with regards to costs for fuel and the like. And actually, we see at the moment, if there are any increases for costs in fuel, A, Qantas has a very good hedging program, but B, they can actually charge an oil price ticket mm. levy as we've seen them do in the past. Mm. The funny thing about those levies is they generally stay, stay for a lot longer than oil prices stay higher. <laughs> so it can actually be a net positive mm. if you're able to look through it and take a bit of a medium to long-term view. Um, but for us, trading on nine times price to earnings with that sort of dividend yield and underpinning the business is probably one of Australia's most valuable businesses, uh, consumer businesses in frequent flyers. Mm. Um, they're not able to monetize that today, but 
if you were able to monetize that in three or four years, we, we'd value that business at $4 a share. Um, for us, the downside is, is very limited to a company like Qantas. You may wear some volatility in, in the consumer numbers, but we think given where we are in the competitive environment and the rational behavior we're seeing from Qantas and Virgin, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great pick and a very compelling investment opportunity. So you mentioned it was up 400%. How long have you guys held it? We bought it back in 2014. So we bought Qantas, I think it was around $1.60. <laughs> it's so. always good to ask that question, right? If you think it's still got upside, you're still holding it. That's yeah, it's actually one of the longest holdings we've had. I mean, generally we, we hold companies for two to three years and they hit valuation. What we've seen with Qantas is there's been trimming and adding along the way, but it's still a compelling investment opportunity today. And the company agrees with us. The company continues to buy back mm. shares uh, and that is a sign that the company believes that their share price is undervalued as well. That's encouraging. So, interesting environment in that investors are rewarding some interesting parts of the market and avoiding others. Patient capital sort of matters for the kind of stocks that you're talking about. How long do you think people need to give it? What sort of time frame do you think people really have to have in mind if you're going for these undervalued companies? Because people have been hurting buying undervalued stuff and then watching Mm. near map rocket yeah. <laughs> you know they'll be going ah oh, i'm in the totally wrong end of the market this is terrible you know my my portfolio has gone nowhere i believe in the companies i bought them for a reason i don't think i paid too much but they just haven't been re-rated yet mm. well if you're investing in the equity market full stop you need to be investing for a five to seven year period and i think if you go back through the aussie equity market and you go in seven to ten year cycles you wouldn't be able to find a period where it's delivered negative returns. Um, so, eighty-seven, uh, you'd be borderline breaking even. I think you're breaking even. <laughs> yeah, I think just you're breaking about. Even. Just. And to be honest, two thousand seven, you also had a bit of a rough run, but dividends have really helped. Exactly, mm. exactly, and so yeah, that is a good point because I'm talking total returns with capital appreciation plus dividends. Mm. Um, so what what the investor receives, but for me, you need to have a five to seven year horizon if you're looking to invest in the equity market. The way we value companies is we generally look out uh, three years and do all of our earnings modeling and, and research looking out three years. The reason for that is we find that looking out any further, uh, you can go further with infrastructure style companies when you're valuing them, but for a standard industrial style company, if you go out any further, your estimates are becoming a lot more uh, pie in the sky, finger in the air style mm. thing. We want to invest with high conviction in the earning certainty. You also find that it matches what the company's strategy looks uh, looks mm. out in their horizon for their strategy as well. So you want to be aligned with that. But I think today what we see with people who are investing in the equity market and a lot of the market is, the market is focused more and more short term. Mm. Um, the market is focused at the, at the minimum 12 months, but at the extreme end, um, half to half in Australia or quarter to quarter in the US. And for us, if you're investing in a company as an investor, not as a speculator, um, then you need to have a longer term view than that. So three plus years at the minimum, um, but if you're in equities and, and you're investing with an active equities manager who's looking to outperform, I think you need to have a five plus year cycle um, in order for that process to come through. Because markets move in cycles and your manager needs to be able to prove themselves across a full cycle not across a six to 12 month period. Yeah, it is. I think particularly given the last couple of years that that short term view has been, 
hasn't been normal. It's yeah. not been normal this period. Um, not that it ever is, right? <laughs> the last the last twelve years have been interesting. And and we've been we've been running uh, high conviction flagship strategy for fourteen years. And what we've seen over that period is there's been five distinct growth or value cycles. So when companies that are considered growth companies with high growth, high PEs. Um, uh, a bit up and their valuations become expensive. Mm. I'd say we are in uh, a deep part of a growth cycle mm. right now. Now, we don't know when those cycles turn. Mm. What we do know is that when they turn, they can turn quickly. Mm. Um, the last growth cycle lasted all the way up until the end of 2015, and you saw January 2016 is, is when it turned, and then value materially outperformed uh, growth over the next 12 months. But what we've seen is markets move in cycles, the Australian market moves in cycles as well. Uh, we feel you know, we're, we're a fair way into a growth cycle. That will probably continue as interest rates come down. Um, and again, it comes down to those discount rates that people mm. are using. Um, but for us, you've got to be building a balanced portfolio that takes where you are in the cycle into consideration. Um, but also, I, I think the safest thing you can do is just not overpay for assets at, at, at any time. So you, you mentioned a company like Nearmap. For us, when you're paying that multiple mm. on that earnings stream, it becomes very, very difficult mm. to get a suitable return on your investment um, over, alone, over the long term. Let alone a positive surprise, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> it's, um, plenty of our investors are really happy to give it a go, though. Uh, so talking about this dichotomy between the value and growth cycles uh, or periods of the market, any major catalysts you guys are looking out for for a re-rating at the moment? I think the biggest risk to equity markets at the moment, and, and the biggest risk to equity market valuations in, in general, is inflation. Um, because what you see, inflation is simply prices of goods going up. Mm. Uh, and, and, and what you see is that when the prices of goods go up, or a basket of goods go up, um, and, and things are good, central banks, reserve banks uh, will respond and, and they will rise interest ra uh, raise interest rates um, in conjunction with that. And again, what that does is it brings down the relative valuation of, of equities. Um, so for there to be any sort of slowdown, I, I think that would be the key risk factor that you would be looking out for. Um, and there are a number of, number of things that can cause that, whether it's rises in wages, which, which we've seen be stubbornly low for a long period of time, um, whether it's just the rise of the cost of goods uh, that you and I buy every single day. Um, what I'd note is inflation has been stubbornly low and so central banks want to get it higher and that is part of the reason why they've mm. been um, lowering rates. Um, but it's inflation is a, is a strange and mystical beast. You don't know when it will rear its head, uh, but what we do know through time is, is that it, when it comes, it's unexpected. Mm. Um, and so they're, they're the sorts of things that we are very cognizant of. And again, it, become, it comes back to being disciplined in your process, making sure you've got, we're a concentrated manager, but we've got an eclectic portfolio across different industries, different sectors, um, different stock specific or, or companies. Um, and we also make sure that we're not overpaying for those, those companies as well. And so that's, that's where the safety comes in. But I think the biggest risk investors need to look out for if you're investing in equities is rising interest rates, rising inflation. The other obvious one is is the trade wars um, and, and what we're seeing between the US and China. Um, again, we don't know how that is going to turn out. 
And so for us, it's about making investment decisions so that the portfolio is relatively unaffected regardless of the outcome of those. I think the hardest thing to predict in the world are macroeconomic moves, interest rate moves, what Trump is going to do. I thought I was going to say what Trump is going to come out with next. That yeah. would be the hardest thing but, to predict, yeah, right? You, you, can't, you can't predict those things. No. Uh, and so for us, it's about focusing on the companies, making sure that the returns we generate for our investors are driven by the companies we own and trying to reduce, you can't eliminate it, but mm. trying to reduce the impact of those macroeconomic risks and, and the big swings that you can see in the market because they can have a material impact. And it's it's quite funny because I'm reading more and more that we're in an environment that's lower for longer and, and, and that may be the case, but I would remind investors that it was only mid last year that we were in a raising bias for interest rates and that turned very, very quickly. Now there were a number of factors and I think we need to look through to the underlying factors as to why central banks and reserve banks are looking to reduce interest rates. It's because we are seeing slowing growth globally. Um, but I think if you see a pickup in that growth or a stabilisation in that growth, uh, the trajectory of those those rates could change. I think also the trajectory can't keep going the way it's going forever, right? There is a natural flaw that, <laughs> that will come into effect at some point. That is correct. Uh, and I will say the NAB economics team absolutely had a had a, uh, a rising interest rate environment in mind last year and now they're expecting another two cuts. So yeah. it is amazing how quickly these things do change and how much impact it has on people. We're worried about too much growth for a while, but worried yeah. about things getting too heated. That's right. We're worried about the opposite. The, the other thing I would say um, is, you know, at the fourth quarter of 2018 last year, you know, there, there was lots of talk that liquidity was was drying up and, and that things weren't looking good because the market was falling. And now you fast forward to this calendar year and the market's up 20%. So macro is very, very hard to predict, but timing the market is almost <laughs> impossible. Even harder. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's even harder. And so what we tell our investors is if you're investing in equity markets, invest for the long term because trying to pick those big market movements and trying to time the market is almost impossible. There are a very small amount of people who can do it. There's probably no one who can do it consistently with accuracy. Mm. Um, and so a much simpler way to invest and, and get, get the returns in equity markets is to take a long-term view and stay invested. Um, and if you can find a good active equity manager who can add returns above the index over the medium to long-term as well, that's another great way to compound your money and, and generate returns over time. It's uh, it's a lot less stressful <laughs> than trying to uh, than to trying to pick the swing. It's been uh, it's, I've been doing this podcast for about a year and a half now, and it's been a really interesting period to do it. Listening to people over that period with their views, as views were changing quite dynamically, and uh, as you say, the 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 cycle. Nothing actually happened, but the the uh, the rate cycle that people were expecting is the exact opposite. Well, 12 months later. And, and you see it in people's portfolios. That Again, that fourth quarter in 2018, a lot of investors put money into cash. Mm. Uh, a lot of investment managers put money into cash. Um, and you've seen what's happened since. Things can change and they can change quickly. Mm. Yeah, markets are amazing. It, the bit that I can't get past I have an economics background I can't get past is that every time there's talk of dropping rates everyone throws money at markets and you're like 
that does suggest that people are very concerned about a weakening economy, right? (laughs) Which should tell you that companies not going to perform quite so well. Demand is dropping. There are lots of headwinds that companies are facing. You're not going to get the return, but no, everyone's throwing their money at it for exactly the reason we were talking about at the beginning, which is cash is dreadful and you don't want it. Therefore, equities are much more attractive now. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And look, we were hearing that feedback from companies on the ground globally is that things are tougher at the moment. Um, and, you know, we're seeing earnings downgrades across the market um, and there is valuation risk out there in pockets of the market. Uh, but again, there's always opportunities. Uh, so for us, it's just about finding those 20 or 30 best opportunities that we can find. Uh, we focus on the Australian market, but I mean, for any active manager, it's just about finding where are those compelling investment opportunities and trying to look through the noise that you see in the market and, and just focus on those. That's that's what we try to do. Yeah, I think the point you're making about just looking at the company itself and forget about the macro environment, right? Just look at whether or not they're doing what they do really well is quite valuable for people in this environment when you're trying to, you know, if you follow tweets and if you look at too much macro data you'll make yourself crazy um, and there are companies still coming through very strongly despite all of that noise it, yeah. uh, it can be quite attractive to find those fun things the beautiful is boring you did mention <laughs> looking beyond equities you guys have an absolute return fund is there anything specific you're looking for in non-traditional assets at the moment that would be quite interesting for people i think yeah i mean our absolute return fund is is quite simple with with the way we invest it's a market neutral Aussie equities fund and so we look to add value in our long portfolio where we buy companies that we think are undervalued taking a medium term view and and do the work on the earnings where we look to add further value is by shorting um, companies and we don't short because of valuation Uh, it's it's actually very different to how we approach it in the long portfolio Um, because what we've seen time and again is that Companies can stay expensive for a very long time as long as they meet earnings expectations. Um, and so, you know, a, a company like A2 Milk, if you'd shorted A2 Milk in 2014, <laughs> you would have lost well over a thousand percent today uh, because they continue to deliver on earnings. Now, whether or not that, that company looks expensive, we're an investor in A2 Milk, we, we like A2 Milk, but whether or not that company looks expensive to, um, to people out there, what is clear is that if they continue to deliver huge earnings growth and people will pay a premium for that company. Uh, what we look for instead of looking at valuation and getting caught up there on the short portfolio is we look for companies that are going to disappoint on earnings. Mm. Um, because again, share prices follow earnings. And so if you see a company in general, nine times out of 10, if a company has a five or 10% earnings downgrade, you're going to see an equivalent share price fall. Uh, in today's market, if yeah. you have a 5 to 10% earnings downgrade, it falls a lot further um, because you know there's, there's a lot of fear driving the market at the moment in, in parts of it. Um, but in general, what we see is if you see a 10% earnings downgrade, the share price will fall an equivalent 5 to 15%. Um, so very, very focused in, in what we do on the short portfolio. We also make sure our long portfolio in that absolute return fund is equal to our short portfolio in in terms of size. Um, And the reason we do that is, let me give you an example. For for a dollar invested in that fund, Mm. uh, we invest 
say a dollar fifty in stocks we think will outperform mm-hmm. in the long portfolio, and we invest a dollar fifty in stocks that we think will underperform in the short portfolio. That dollar fifty on the long side and that dollar fifty on the short side cancels each other out. Mm-hmm. And so even though we're investing in equities and in the equity market, you're actually not getting any equity market exposure. Yeah, you're giving an uncorrelated return. That is exactly right, because the short portfolio is offsetting or hedging the long portfolio. Um, So we look for earnings downgrades in that short portfolio, but we also use that short portfolio for risk management. Um, And we look to reduce our exposure to equity markets so that you get that uncorrelated source of returns or returns that are different or independent from the market. And we also look to reduce our exposure to those macroeconomic risks. Um, So a great example might be, you know, our exposure to China may be impacted by having a positive view on an iron ore position. And we would offset that Chinese exposure with a short position to make sure that the portfolio's returns isn't driven by China policy. It's actually just driven by, is that stock we're choosing in the long portfolio the right stock? Is it undervalued? Will it outperform in the long term? What you get, is a portfolio that's driven by stock selection and the companies we own or the companies we're shorting Mm. and isn't driven by market movements, market direction, macroeconomic themes. Um, And so that's how we look to build that absolute return portfolio. Um, Still taking risk, but taking risk in where we think we have an edge in stock selection, picking the best companies that we think will outperform and companies that we think will downgrade in that short portfolio. I think that's really interesting for people. It's not something that a lot of our investors would have exposure to, but I think it's something they would like to uh, to contemplate at least. Kyle, Firetrail, you guys produce some really great insights for people. You, you know, you keep people up to date with your thoughts and ideas. Where do people go to find out more about what you're thinking? Yeah, for sure. Everything uh, we do with regards to insights, um, our strategies, how you can access Firetrail and our investment products is on our website, firetrail.com. Right. Why fire trail, by the way? That's a good question. When, <laughs> when we started the business, you mentioned it at the start, but we, we came from uh, Macquarie and the entire investment team came across mm-hmm. um, to, to start fire trail. And when we were talking about the name for the business, it's, it's very, very challenging yeah. naming a new business. There's a, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of debate. We're, we're naturally inclined to debate as investors. Yeah, yeah. So we just <laughs> argue with each other for hours. Yeah, that's exactly mm-hmm. right. Um, and so it was uh, very robust, the discussions, and we were really struggling to come up with a name. But then we found this app where it's used for when you're booking a holiday with your mm-hmm. family. And if you're in Australia and you've got family in the US or in the Northern Hemisphere, it gives you the best place to meet at a midpoint and so generally if you're here and you're meeting family anywhere in the north atlantic hawaii it's basically it's basically the go-to so we put in where we all grew up um and all of the um principles at fire trail we all grew up in regional areas of australia i'm Mm. from the blue mountains patrick uh patrick hodgins our managing directors from newcastle um we've got a guy from um the South Coast. We got a guy who's a New Zealander, very regional New South Wales. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and we got a guy from Bendigo. Uh, mm. We put it all in, and it it landed in the midpoint, which was in the middle of nowhere in South uh, in in South West New South Wales, um, just outside of Bannerby. Yeah. Uh, but where it landed was on Hanworth Fire Trail, and so we saw the fire trail, and uh, and that was it. That's how we came up with the name. We thought it was a great way to represent our new journey together, uh, starting the new business. <laughs> that is a really cool name. I love that story. That's awesome. 
Carl McIntyre from Firetrail. Awesome name. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we hope this episode has been helpful, you, helpful for you on your journey to creating wealth. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, we do love to hear from you. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.